Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And John Carl is headed back from Singapore, an eventful couple of days uh, overseas. I think he's tired. I think they're all tired, man. That's a lot of travel. Uh, um, It it gives us, though, I think an opportunity to take a step back from the goings-on of President Trump. Of course, Trump is kind of the only story in in every realm these days. But Mary Alice, um, our specialty is politics. And we're we're about at the midterm of the midterms. We're about halfway home through the primary contests, and uh, there were another batch just this week, uh, uh, a, a number of interesting contests, particularly some very close to here in Washington, D.C., in Virginia. And, Mary Alice, it's, it feels like a, a time to to check in on the, the state of both parties because there's a lot of interesting dynamics coursing through uh, these races that we're seeing. Absolutely. About half the states have voted. And I was struck that here in Virginia, just our sort of next door neighbor, more than half of the Democratic candidates will be women. That's an unbelievable fact when you think about the fact that just over 100 members of Congress are women. That was roughly 20 percent. And here you have one party nominating more than half. More than half of their candidates will be women in Virginia, uh, their congressional candidates going into the fall. And it's not Virginia, of course. I mean, we, we saw it We saw it last week in the California primaries. And I know you've been tracking the numbers and talking to a lot of these candidates. A lot of them are first-time candidates. A lot of them are, um, like our um, upcoming guest, uh, 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 people who served in the armed services. Uh, they, they bring a, a different feel, a different profile to these races. And uh, it does seem to me that the, the dominant story on the Democratic side is that the pink wave is for real. They at least are going to have the women running for office. Whether they win or not, what kind of numbers they're going to see, it is developing into a year of the woman. And I'm struck, Mary Alice, by the, the kinds of the, the, the kinds of reasons that they're citing. Uh, because, again, we say Trump's the only story. Uh, for a lot of them, it was waking up the day after the election and realizing what's happening in this country uh, and, and, and saying, well, it's time to do something about that. That's right. A lot of the women cite Trump as the reason that they got involved. But you're right. These are women that bring a diversity of backgrounds, different careers, kind of non-traditional candidates. In Virginia, you had a female James Bond, a former spy, <laughs> who talked to me about how she had to get permission from the CIA to declassify her work before she could basically put that she was a spy on her resume. You asked her if she was actually an assassin. Well, she said that was a comment that she got (laughs) from voters, some that said... So were you a paid assassin? I asked. So were you? She laughed. She said, of course not. But still, she can barely talk about where her work sent her. It was interesting, though. She said that having come from a male-dominated profession, kind of an intense profession, she thought that voters somehow could skip over those questions that often plague female candidates. Are they tough enough? Can they handle it? Can they balance family life? Fair or not, female candidates do get those questions. And she said that her career sort of was a shortcut. Voters could get past that. There's another woman in Virginia who was a a Navy commander, led entire ships, entire teams of active ready troops. She operated eight nuclear reactors on a ship. I mean, these women are incredibly interesting and dynamic. Uh, and, and, And again, intense is the word I keep coming back to because they have just wild resumes. Uh, But you're right. It's been a story on the Democratic side. Just they've blown through all previous records in terms of the number of women that filed to run and are winning their primaries. And we're going to check in a little bit later with uh, a 
a, a, a young man who is seen as a potential rising star in the Democratic Party, uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, ran for DNC chair unsuccessfully shortly after the election and got a lot of uh, a lot of attention there. Pete Buttigieg uh, is, a, is a name that you're starting to see pop up in 2020 circles. We're going to talk to him about uh, the future of the Democratic Party, a, a fascinating resume that he has serving uh, serving in Afghanistan as part of uh, as part of the Navy Reserve, um, in addition to being a Rhodes Scholar, Harvard, openly gay, a lot of interesting storylines that come together in the person of Mayor Pete. But on the Republican side, um, Let's talk a little bit about what we've learned so far, because the latest headline uh, on the Republican side just this week, you had the uh, the triumph of Trumpism once again. In Virginia, uh, Corey Stewart, who had the backing very early on of Steve Bannon, was uh, Steve Bannon had crowned him as the as the leader of, uh, of the Trump movement, the Make America Great Trump movement in Virginia, uh, emerged from a primary that was really all about who could be the closest to Donald Trump. Uh, we should note that Corey Stewart, um, over time after Charlottesville, uh, continued to defend um, uh, people that participated in uh, in that march that turned violent, um, has uh, defended the placement of Confederate monuments inside Virginia, has appeared at public events with white supremacists. Um, the the National Republican Senatorial Committee uh, very loudly declined to comment on his nomination. President Trump, though, did, and he has endorsed Corey Stewart. Um, He's running against Tim Kaine. I don't think anyone puts this as a realistic pickup opportunity, but this is a big state in Virginia that has just nominated a man that really has been the kind of person that in the past existed only on the fringes is going to be the nominee in a big purple state that has competitive elections all the time. Right, and this is the state that last November started the conversations about the potential for a blue wave this November. You had the Democratic governor win and win kind of by a landslide, by more than anyone thought. This was the state that brought us Danica Rome, the first openly transgender state legislator, brought all these new women, like we were just talking about, to that state legislator to the point where they almost flipped the state house. Democrats doing so much better in that state than people had thought last year. So the idea that the Republican making a hard pivot to the right, the Republican Party in that state making a really dramatic pivot uh, could set up some of the congressional candidates for for a really rough year. Some of those Republican incumbents who were looking to hold on to their seats might be um, might be pulled down. That's the fear. They might be pulled down by this nominee. That's the fear by some of the national national Republicans. And meanwhile, down in South Carolina, um, only the second incumbent to lose a primary this year, and it's a name that you know most people are familiar with. Mark Sanford, the former governor of South Carolina. Uh, we all remember the uh, the tabloid ready details of his extramarital affair, which was initially being covered up as a as a trip along the Appalachian Trail. Uh, that trip didn't happen, but he stayed as governor and then uh, ran for Congress to to take back his old congressional seat. He's been a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He's been um, somewhat nationally prominent because of his uh, notoriety. Uh, also, he's been a guy that has occasionally said that uh, that he disagrees with with Donald Trump, which is a harder voice to find these days in the Republican Party. Uh, so he goes into what everyone knew would be a very very tough. A primary race against a, a candidate who accused him of being insufficiently loyal to Donald Trump. President Trump took time out of his journey back from Singapore to tweet his um, his uh, his anti endorsement of, uh, of of Congressman Sanford, and lo and behold, he loses his primary. And it, it is stunning to me, Mary Alice, that a that a congressman could continue his career after lying to the American people, lying to his constituents about his whereabouts to cover up an extramarital affair. 
but ultimately lose, ultimately lose in large part because he was not sufficiently loyal to the president. I think that the analysis in the next few weeks about this race will be a little bit split. Was this a case of not being close enough to Trump? That's how uh, she would like to paint it, the the, the challenger who right. defeated him. She'd like to paint it like that. Or was this a case of a really unique guy who had a complicated past, whose numbers weren't ever really great in his rebound? Uh, we're not talking about a clear picture here, but you're exactly right. There are plenty of Republicans who are facing possible challengers, possible primary challengers, uh, who are going to look at this and be nervous that they might not have been close enough to President Trump, that he could sway the election in the final hours, uh, that they want to make sure they're in his good graces going into any Republican primary. And Mary Alice, if you're a Republican who is at all troubled by what what uh, he or she sees out of the White House, out of the president's behavior on a, on a, on a semi-regular basis. We ask this question all the time. Where is the Republican Party? Where are the Republicans who are going to stand up and say, we disagree with the president on this or we condemn him on that? The message that you're getting from primary voters in state after state is, we don't care about areas where the president may stray from conservative dogma or may offend sensibilities with what he's saying about about individuals. What we care about is our hero, the president. And I feel like larger than the Mark, than Mark Sanford, the message that gets sent is that there is no upside for a Republican, uh, especially a Republican who wants to keep his or her job in speaking out against the president, that voters are not rewarding that, that voters are not parsing the the details of presidential behavior the same the way that we in the media are and saying, well, this is something that, you know, I understand the president is the, the Republican president, but I just don't agree with it. it there, there's just so little daylight for that uh, and, and no reward structure that's being built into these primaries. But that doesn't necessarily mean that voters are rewarding people that stand by his side to the nth degree either. We've seen some of his most ardent supporters on Capitol Hill struggle in their bids for, for, for Senate, in Senate primaries and the like. It seems like voters also, I agree with you, Rick, but they also just want change. They want yeah. new faces, new energy. They want someone that'll stand with the president to bring about disruption. I think that, and, and, and something new to Washington. That's a lot of the interest from voters across the country. And, and anytime you're checking in on the midterms, you need to add the caveat that this is one party voting. Uh, on on candidates in in most of these places, and th- this is how Republican primary voters are casting their ballots in a state like Virginia. That's a lot different than winning in Virginia or even South Carolina, for that matter. Uh, even in a very Republican state, a primary voter is a particular slice of the electorate. Uh, I am curious. We always the, the couple of dynamics that may be challenged this year. Typically, a president in his first midterm uh, loses seats. You see a lot of people uh, in in their in their own party whether that's uh, George W. Bush in, 2000, uh, in 2002, less so 2002 because of 9-11, but certainly by 2006, a lot of them were, were a lot of Republicans were running away from him. Uh, and you saw it in 2010, a lot of conservative Democrats running away from Barack Obama. I'm curious as to whether there's any dynamic in that direction for, for President Trump uh, this time around, uh, whether there's going to be any any significant bolting uh, among Republicans in the general election, whether that's even possible uh, when you have a president who is this overriding presence and still a very, very popular presence inside his own party. And if independents and people who haven't voted regularly uh, will be a force big enough to essentially override or nullify the tone 
and preference of Republican voters. That was such a big part of of President Trump's victory, was bringing new voters, first-time voters, uh, and independents on board. It's one thing to have the Republican Party and the Republican base with you. It's a totally other story to have those uh, those more independent voters uh, that are much more of a question mark with you as well. That's right. And, and the, the question of, of the way that Trump motivates voters on both sides and truly on, on both sides. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we are back, we are going to be joined by the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a young Democrat uh, who you haven't heard of yet. You're going to hear a lot more of him in the next couple of years. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the, the mayor of South Bend. Stick around. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. And now joining us here on Powerhouse Politics, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you. So, Mr. Mayor, I want to start with the news uh, and the news just overnight. Uh, President Trump declaring uh, the nuclear threat from North Korea to be to be gone entirely. Even leaving aside that statement, I, I want to take your temperature on this. Do you believe that the events in Singapore, uh, the signing of this uh, of this communique, that the United States is safer now than it was before? And to what extent does President Trump deserve credit for that? You know, I'm, I'm a little skeptical based on what we've seen so far. The commitments to denuclearization sound an awful lot like what we saw in the 90s. Um, I'm having a hard time figuring out what we got in exchange for legitimizing the North Korean regime. We've put an American flag next to a North Korean flag and basically treated uh, a dictator like an equal. It does to me, though, uh, Mayor Buttigieg, it raises a, a, a larger issue of approach when it comes to foreign policy, because one could argue, and Trump will certainly not argue this, but one could argue that President Trump is pursuing a very Obama-like uh, pursuit here. And uh, his his very famous debate answer about meeting with uh, the leaders of of countries like North Korea, like Iran, uh, without preconditions, uh, his his open hand toward Cuba, the negotiation uh, of the Iran deal. It was that very different foreign policy. Do you, do you feel like President Trump should get some credit for trying something different with North Korea, whether or not it works out? We know that the previous approaches weren't. Well, look, you, you could certainly argue that uh, what's happening here is different. The, the question is whether it's good. Uh, I think that uh, you can't really compare this to the Obama foreign policy because uh, he believed in talking to anybody that we could. Um, This president seems committed to talking to our enemies, but seems to have a little more trouble talking to our friends. Uh, You know, I'm not totally convinced that the United States has a foreign policy right now. And uh, I think any effort to understand what what will amount to a a so-called Trump doctrine will, will have to be done later on looking back, because it's just too confusing to establish or determine what the pattern even is. 
So, Mayor, I'm going to make a hard pivot here to another headline, a more political headline. Last year, you met with President Obama, we heard, uh, to talk about a potential 2020 run. Curious what you can tell us about that meeting, what advice he might have given you. Well, uh, you know, that's not totally uh, the right characterization. The president's, uh, I think, gone out of his way to meet with people in the Democratic Party who are emerging. He's made it clear that his um you know, his ex-presidency is largely going to be about supporting a new generation, not just in politics, but in culture and the arts. And uh, you know, I think uh, the next generation is going to be fortunate to have somebody like that uh, guiding them. Um, as far as what's happening in politics right now, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a challenge, I think, for the party to figure out at a moment when uh, there's no kind of dominant figure the way there is when there's a sitting president or uh, the way there was even when you had uh, figures like uh, like the Clintons um, kind of speaking for the party. Now I think you're going to see a lot more different voices around the country uh, as opposed to any single leader. And while that's a little chaotic for our party, that could be a healthy thing as well. But does it say something about the party that it might be lacking vision if it's lacking leadership? Look, I think the Democratic Party has a very straightforward and winning message, which is that we're a party that exists to support people going through everyday life. I do think we've muddled that uh, through this hand-wringing over what our message is. I think um, uh, we've gone through a, a period of, of shock in response to what happened in 2016 uh, that really compels us to uh, pull together and be more organized, more focused, and more disciplined. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say that uh, there's a lack of leadership. On the contrary, there's a really strong bench uh, that is uh, has, has been waiting for a long time to be called out onto the field. If you look at state and local leaders in the Democratic Party, there's some extraordinary talent. And uh, I think the unfortunate thing is sometimes when people imagine Democratic leadership, all they can picture is members of Congress from a different generation from the coasts and don't realize how much is going on uh, really across the country at the state and local level. I want to I want to get your sense of things uh, uh, with the midterms so far. We're about halfway through. Roughly half the states have voted, uh, including your state of, of Indiana, uh, a couple weeks ago, and we've seen Democrats a lot of a lot of the, the wars of 2016 spill over into 2018. We've seen some very brutal primaries. We've seen a lot of anger directed at the national party, uh, state parties breaking with national parties. We've seen also. A remarkable wave of women um, and uh, and uh, people of color running, LGBT candidates running. What's your sense of of the message that this slate of candidates brings here, roughly at halftime of the midterm year? I think three very strong patterns are happening. First of all, uh, you see a very strong pattern of women leadership emerging, which is uh, long overdue and I think very welcome. Uh, the second thing you see is that a lot of formerly conservative or at least very pro-Trump districts or electorates have swung. Uh, this is more something you see, of course, in, in the um, specials than, than you can see where the primaries are going on, because uh, we don't know what the primaries will lead to in terms of the generals. But what we have seen, there have been enough special elections uh, that we can see a strong pattern of uh, swings, sometimes 10 or 20 or even more points, away from uh, the Republican ticket and away from Trump. The third pattern you see, and I think the most interesting of all, is generational. You see a lot of people stepping up uh, in the party from uh, younger candidates running for Congress to, again, people running for these very unsexy state and, and, and local government roles that people like me care a lot about. Um, you see that, and you see in that, I think, a glimpse of what the future of the Democratic Party is going to look like. I think it's very powerful, and I think 
uh, it's uh, also something that reminds us when you think about the trajectory of these uh, generational candidates emerging that we've got to have messages that will make sense even when uh, this president has come and gone. Another trend to me is that the party is backing folks who uh, reflect their district, less concerned with um, a national brand. You know, I, I was out in California in Orange County for a while um, just last week and and was struck by the much more sort of centrist, sort of business-minded Orange County Democrats that the party was, was backing. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's a sense of the party's message is be who you are, but do do whatever it takes to win. Don't don't worry about sort of our lines, our talking points. But are there limits to that? Is there limits to what to what should be a democratic identity across the board? I mean, for example, should Democrats back a pro life candidate if that's what it would take to win? Yeah. So I think again, it's a healthy thing that you're seeing uh, different kinds of Democrats emerging from different kinds of areas. Uh, certainly. Now, where I'm from in Indiana, if you don't have moderate Democrats, you don't have Democrats in office, uh, at least in some of our districts. And so, uh, you know, unlike uh, what's happening, I think, on the other party, which is a, a race to the front, uh, you're increasingly seeing the Democratic Party some ideological diversity. That's a healthy thing. It doesn't mean we need to give up on our core uh, values as a party. And I think uh, we ultimately will always come back to whether we support uh, people going through everyday life and not uh, the people who have the most economic power, uh, the kinds of people who benefited from the tax break that uh, uh, by far will do uh, more for uh, a small handful of people than the rest of the country combined, um, making sure that we're uh, sticking up for people, uh, getting their health care and keeping their health care. It's not about a litmus test on what kind of health care that ought to be. Um, there's some very strong views on that within the party, but where we all agree is that efforts by the other side to take access to health care away are going to make people worse off in their everyday lives. And I think you're going to continue to see a center of gravity that explains what makes Democrats Democrats, even as we put forward different candidates who fit different districts and different states who are going to have some differences on the issues. There's so many complex dynamics in this midterm year, and, and you're living some of them right there in Indiana, because Indiana is a, a pretty red state with a Democratic a senator uh, that's uh, running for re-election in Joe Donnelly, and you also have all of these House races, including some in Indiana, that are potentially competitive, where the president is a polarizing figure. The big question, the I-word, impeachment, do you believe that Democrats should be running on uh, the promise of impeaching the president if they take back the House and or the Senate? I think that the most important thing we can do is have a message that is bigger than this moment and bigger than this president. Uh, we should be able to talk about where we see this country going first uh, before focusing on where we see this president going. This president may very well deserve to be impeached, but uh, frankly, I'd much rather see him removed by the American people through the democratic process, because I think watching uh, America reject this unpopular and uh, in many ways, just wrong-headed uh, approach to government and leadership, if you can call it leadership. Um, that's what's really going to decisively send uh, Trumpism into the dustbin of history and allow uh, even the Republican Party to get to a healthier place, uh, not to mention for those of us who have more progressive values, uh, helping us to uh, lead America in the direction we believe in. But for those who, who are vying to have a vote on this actual issue, if you're vying to become a member of Congress, or you, when you travel around the country, what do you answer on the question, should the president be impeached? Well, again, I think uh, he probably deserves it, but I'm much more interested 
in where the country is going than where the president is going. And I think, you know, focusing on that makes it look as though uh, all we can think about is this president. Uh, I think we've got to stop behaving as if uh, this president is all that matters. And frankly, we've got to stop behaving as if the White House is the only office that matters. The Democratic Party lost a thousand legislative seats across the country in Congress and state legislatures uh, during the last decade. If we can't reverse that, it's not going to matter who the president is. We are going to be defeated constantly on uh, the most important issues that we care about. It's why uh, pointing out why uh, the other guy is terrible isn't the same as having a message. We have for so long been talking about him that there are voters in places like Indiana where I live who are saying, okay, but who's talking about me? And the the center, the core, the, the North Star of our policy and our politics has got to be the American citizen. It's got to be the voter, not the president. You've been talking about the need for a generational shift, for new leadership. What about Nancy Pelosi? I've been struck by how many candidates that I talk to across the country, Democrats, are unwilling to say that they would back her for speaker should Democrats take the House. Do you think it's time for her to uh, pass the torch? I think we are ready for generational change. And uh, again, I don't think it's about any one figure uh, who's in elected office. I wish we spent less time talking about the people uh, in office in Washington and a little more time talking about the uh, people who are going to be making these decisions and and the people who live in neighborhoods like mine in South Bend. Um, That generational change will come. uh, And I think most importantly, though, we can't set this up as a battle between the generations. You know, one of the things that I find very striking, for example, about the uh, the movement that has been led by the Parkland students is that it's not younger people against older people. It's, if anything, it's an intergenerational alliance. It's uh, young people standing up and stepping up and uh, older people having their back. And I think we need to have our politics be like that as well. Finally, Mayor Pete, uh, we're not going to ask you the traditional 2020 question because we never get an interesting answer out of candidates. You're free to give one if you'd like, but <laughs> let's ask you a, 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 more, a more hypothetical version of it. You're the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and South Bend's a terrific city, a um, city of about 100,000. Can the mayor of a city of 100,000 go directly from that to national office, go directly from that to running for the presidency, or, or, or should there or does there need to be a stop in between? Well, I think in 2020, we're going to find out which of the rules of politics still apply and which ones have been broken forever. You know, the president of the United States is basically a game show host. So I think any traditional answers about uh, paths to power in this country uh, have at least been suspended, if not uh, done away with forever. Uh, You know, I think uh, any moment of political leadership, any uh, candidacy for any office comes down to this question. What does the office need, and what do the candidates bring to the table? My personal experience has been seeing, for example, that the city of South Bend needed a different kind of energy, somebody who could focus on economic change, and somebody who could get over some local factional struggles. And uh, so I ran, and things have gone very well here in South Bend. It was the same dynamic uh, that motivated me to run for chair of the DNC. Uh, I didn't win that time, but, um, but I saw that same pattern where I thought what I brought to the table 
uh, fit the moment. And I think, uh, you know, this coming presidential election or any presidential election uh, is going to be less about whether some traditional um, pathway is being followed. It's going to be more about which candidates speak to the moment and uh, can speak to what the country most needs right now. All right. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Thanks for being here on Powerhouse Politics. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, Mary Alice, I I, I feel like we talk about Mayor Pete now in some intriguing ways. Obviously, only the mayor of South Bend, but a really intriguing portfolio guy in his mid-30s, served in the the Navy Reserves, Harvard, Rhodes Scholar, LGBT. He's he's openly gay. It's an intriguing profile. Uh, And and, and I feel like there's this crop of Democrats that are going to look and sound and, and generationally be a lot different than your father or your grandfather's Democrats. Right. He talks about the party needing a generational shift and there being a strong bench of folks ready to be called out on the field. I think what he means is people like me. That's right. <laughs> that are ready, right. that are primed and ready to go. But, you know, he said something interesting there at the end, uh, regardless of his age. I think he's right that we will see if rules of politics in this country have just been broken forever in the last few years. Uh, there's some there's some real truth to that. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of Democrats who look at how all the rules seem to be different or being re- rewritten, why wait for your turn when the when the, the previous experience with the Democratic president was a, a young freshman senator who didn't wait his turn. And then this reality star who came out of nowhere from the political world and runs for president. Yeah, the, he said those, a game show host. Game show host. I'm sorry. That's right. <laughs> game, a, a game show host. Uh, and I, I, I do think, uh, you know, to, to the other point about being a Democrat in a red state these days, you're right that they need to and they are finding Democrats that look more like them. The question is going to be what the tribes of politics mean these days. We've seen President Trump redefine what it means to be a Republican in very dramatic ways. And we see that play out in primary after primary, where the Trump vision of the Republican Party is the only version of the Republican Party that that works in these races for Congress right now. So is is that reverting to the tribe of Republican, is that powerful enough in states like in Indiana or West Virginia or Missouri or Montana, all the places that the Democrats are now trying to hold on to seats? Uh, is President Trump able to transfer what remains his popularity into big electoral success? That's a very bad prescription for Democrats. Right. I think that the mayor struggled a little bit when with both praising what he called an ideological diversity among candidates in the party, but saying the party still needed to have some core values. I'm not sure that every American voter could put on one page or on one hand what the core values of the Democratic Party are. Uh, We might, you know, people that that study it or are here every day, but I think you're seeing an erosion of that on both parties. Um, People having a hard time saying, what does this party stand for more than just a name, a letter, a, a color? That's right. And a lot of these questions aren't going to be settled even in the midterm year. They're going to be punted down to 2020. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, Mary Alice, for for joining us today. Uh, We'll have John Carl back stateside shortly after that uh, long trip in Singapore. Our thanks to Trevor Hastings, our grand poobah of producing, of course, Angie Yak uh, and, uh, and Avery Miller and the whole team here at ABC News. We'll catch you next time on Powerhouse Politics.